Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Christian Wilcox. Christian is the principal of Leeds West Academy, the largest of three academies under the White Rose Academies Trust based in Rodley, West Yorkshire. Christian, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Hello, thank you. Real pleasure having you with us, Christian. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is first and foremost to establish your take on leadership. So if we just take that word leader aside for a moment and consider that, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates. What should a leader be in your eyes? Um, I think the, the, the key theme of, of leadership for me, particularly in the education sector, is is um, means behaving in a way which is which is ethical, um, which has um, all stakeholders' best interests at heart, and really guiding people, supporting people who who work in our various organisations in order to to deliver that um, the highest of of standards, the highest of expectations of of, of our staff and our students. To deliver the best outcomes for our students and ethical leadership means that we don't necessarily work in a way which is which is competitive between educational institutions that we work in a way that complements each other's work we work in a way that just works to serve our communities in the best way possible um, and I think being a leader in that organization you really are, are in a position a privileged position to be able to to establish and uh, develop culture in our schools in order to be able to behave um, in that ethical way so that everyone lives by the same guiding principles, everyone abides by the same standards and has the same expectations and ambitions um, for our students. And I think one of the key um, the key elements of leadership in, in the kind of schools that, uh, that the White Rose Academies Trust serve is that um, we have to believe that everything is possible for our students and for our families and, and for our communities because they deserve the absolute best. And anything that we can learn from all aspects of uh, leadership across the country, not just education, but from uh, multinational corporations, from other public sector organisations in terms of how they lead and how they develop culture only serves our pupils um, to, uh, to achieve the very best. For themselves in the future. And in the context of the here and now with the emergence of COVID-19, of course, and the fact that schools have been closed all but to, of course, vulnerable pupils and um, those children of key workers for the large duration of the uh, the lockdown until the reopening has begun, um, not quite in earnest, but a little bit recently. Um, we've lost that sort of common social space, um, haven't we? Um, sort of teachers um, and pupils in that sense. And it, that sort of social isolation element has really brought to the fore the importance of mental health and well-being during this time um how important are those issues within leadership both in terms of looking after one's own mental health in a leadership position and also those of their employees and in your case as well also the pupils if we take um i mean i suppose being in in the position that that i've kind of worked in throughout this period it's not really been a period of isolation because um there hasn't been a day when um we've not been at work or we've not been 
thinking about about work and how we can you know together guide our staff and our students through um, through the, the you know the, the current period. Um, in terms of staff well-being, we've we've really had a focus as a trust on on making sure that that is on the forefront. I mean, we we announced very very early on to all of our staff just before the closure that um, we had to give them that reassurance that you know people would still get paid. Um, that the budget was still incoming uh, for schools and therefore people's jobs were safe. And that included people who were returning from maternity leave, people who were, um, retur- you know, who, who had maybe been off on long-term uh, absence, that they would be paid in accordance with, um, with you know, their normal terms and conditions. We had to give people that reassurance because that, that security had to be in place from the outset. We also established, you know, some, some really key mechanisms to... Uh, to support staff, so we set up uh, a well-being email address that uh, was promoted uh, weekly by the principals of, of each of our academies, so that um, staff knew exactly where they could get help when they needed it, and that included anything from um, support with seeking financial help, and uh, if they'd experienced hardship, if any members of their families had had been furloughed or, or found themselves out of work. Or you know, even if they were just finding social isolation difficult, we had a number of staff who were were, were shielding or, or were shielding uh, loved ones. We made sure that we put in place you know really clear welfare checks for those staff so that they could um, you know we we could regularly check in with those so that they didn't have that sense of self isolation. And in our weekly communications, we also made it clear that those staff were doing their bit to uh, to protect the NHS. Um, you know, just because they weren't necessarily attending work and, and supporting with the, the on-site provision for um, children of key workers or, or um, more vulnerable children, that they were doing their bit because they were protecting the NHS, they were protecting those core services in shielding or protecting their loved ones. So we had to make that clear. and We, we didn't want to really uh, develop or, or allow a culture to develop where staff who were uh, in attendance, you know, in work on a regular basis, we're seeing other people as being, you know, somehow um, less willing or less uh, less able to support that they were still doing their bit. And we made that kind of front and centre in all of our communications that that was really important. And that's really, you know, the, the leadership element of that is, is really key because we had to set that tone. And it goes back to what I was saying before about ethical leadership is that we, we are responsible for setting the culture in our organisation. And if we allow um, any kind of negative or subculture to, to, to grow, then that is our, our responsibility. Um, and we have to make sure that we set that culture from the outset. So that's been a key challenge. And in terms of um, student well-being, obviously the, the welfare of our students is, is our core purpose. So, you know, all of the, um, the, the safeguarding processes, the, the regular welfare checks. They've, you know, we've had staff who have literally not had a day off since uh, the 20th of March because they've been conducting either doorstep checks on, on key vulnerable students and families, or they've been making phone calls um, to those uh, those key students and families. We've spoken to every single student in our academies um, and across our trust, and actually doing a lot of work in the, the wider community. We have a lot of international students who um, have needed our support. Um, so we've had to work really closely with the Department for Education to try and get additional support for students such as our GRP community um, to make sure that they have access to 
um, to you know benefit uh, you know some of those families are, are on zero contracts, for example, zero hours contracts. We have to make sure that we we could put as much support and as much guidance into those communities as possible. Um, so. I mean, that, that's really been a key element to our work is making sure that we represent our families and their challenges. The key challenge to leadership in that is that it's a completely different role to, you know, the typical role of education. Mm-hmm. It, it's very much been uh, uh, the leadership of, uh, of social change and social challenge, which I know is an element of school leadership anyway, but it's certainly been more, much more prevalent um, during this period of time as well. And two important elements of leadership are, of course, honesty and clarity. We can also add a third, transparency to that as well. Um, and there's been a great deal of debate around just how clear government guidelines have been throughout the uh, the crisis, despite, of course, the support measures that they have put in place um, for businesses. Um, are you satisfied, Christian, that like you know what is expected of you going forward as the education sector begins to reopen in earnest from September? I think the it, it, it's important to, to kind of stress that, you know, the guidance that's been released, you know, from the outset has, you know, there's no doubt it's been a challenge because all kinds of policies have changed or and, and necessarily changed. Um, the response of government has, you know, has been, um, has been as rapid, I think, as it could have been, considering the logistical challenges that all schools and you know the wider education sector have had. Um, when we've had the guidance, I think it has rightly put the the onus on uh, local leaders uh, in education to make the decisions that are right for their context. So from the outset, you know, even the wider reopening to year ten students, for example, in the secondary sector, it's placed the responsibility on school leaders. And whilst that's been a challenge. It's a necessary challenge because we know our schools the best. We know our students and our communities the best. And therefore, you know, um, when we talk about honesty and transparency, I think the government have been transparent about placing that onus and that responsibility on individual school leaders. You know, there's no way that uh, a unilateral decision can be made that would be uh, in keeping with every single context. There's always going to be nuances to that. Um, and I think that's certainly the case with the latest guidance that was was literally released yesterday, um, with regard to the reopening of schools in September. Um, so obviously, as a trust, we are working through that guidance uh, meticulously. We are seeing how that guidance will work in our context. I think it gives us all the tools that we need, but rightly, it puts the responsibility for our students and our staff safety on us as leaders, and you know that's about as honest. And as transparent um, as it can get, because we know our staff, we know our buildings, we know our context, and we know what our our uh, our communities need. So, therefore, you know, I think uh, it's a challenge. It's an absolute challenge, but uh, it's a challenge that we have. You know, since the twentieth of March, when schools closed, that school leaders have embraced and worked really, really well, really collaboratively to to come up with solutions. We're a very solution-focused profession. Um, and as such, we, we will be ready and we will, we, you know, we look forward to helping our students back in, uh, in September. That's really positive because it has been a very difficult and a very sensitive time. Um, would you say, like looking back on the pandemic experience thus far, that there is anything that you have learned as a leader in the world of education over the last few months as you've had to adapt to this sort of new reality? Um, 
I think you know. I think what we've learned is the the, the the depth to which our communities need schools. I think you know lots of. I know there were initial um, you know amusing videos that were posted on social media um, around people apologising to school teachers for you know everything they've said about them in the past, um, and you know as they. Uh, the, the families across the country embark on um, uh, educating their children from home. Um, and I think, you know, the wider community have, have, have kind of realized that the, the teaching profession is a really challenging profession and it brings in so many different skills and so many different responsibilities. Um, it's, you know, it's an incredible piece of work that, that our teachers do. And I think what we've, you know, what we've learned is that one, we can be incredibly responsive um, we can adapt, we can mobilize our workforce in ways that, you know, maybe before we never thought were possible. And the one thing I've learned is the willingness of, of you know, the teaching profession, certainly within the White Lotus Academy's trust, to, um, to, to change their core business. They've understood clearly what their responsibilities have been. They've understood what their civic duty has been. And they haven't hesitated to respond. We haven't had a member of staff who has, so much as uh, has has queried their responsibility um, in dealing with this pandemic in the best, you know, the most appropriate possible way. Um, so it's been really humbling um, to to see that and and to to hear of that across the city of Leeds. I work with a group of head teachers across the city, um, led by uh, you know council leaders, and it's uh, it's really humbling to hear the work that goes on uh, across our city. Um, it's been an incredible um, joint effort. And thinking now about what the future holds and what the new normal will bring as the education sector does reopen in earnest, what do you envision on the horizon over the next 12 to 18 months for yourself, for Leeds West Academy, for the White Rose Academy's Trust? And what do you really hope to achieve during that period? I think... Um, yeah. I don't think there would be anybody working in education who aren't excited about the prospect of, of getting some degree of normality back, although the new normal may be very, very different. And I think, you know, everyone in, in every sector is starting to think about things that they would, they've actually quite um, enjoyed about uh, the way they've had to work during uh, the lockdown process. You know, the, the development of, of remote working, uh, the flexibility that that brings, um, the, uh, it is certainly there's elements of that that we will keep. Um, the development of more remote learning for our students, there's elements of that that we will certainly be keeping and strengthening and using to blend uh, our approach to, to learning much, much more with our students. Um, I think there's, there's, there's challenges ahead, certainly, um, around uh, the restoration of uh, of. Uh, relationships with students, the restoration of of their confidence in, in returning to school. As I say, we, we work in challenging communities, and you know, school attendance was was always a challenge for our communities. And therefore, coming back to school post pandemic is going to be something which is going to take a great deal of of care and thought uh, by by all staff who work in in our profession. <laughs> I think. Um, there's, there's exciting times ahead um, in terms of, you know, w- we are rolling out uh, a new curriculum for our students, but there's an opportunity for that to, to really be responsive to 
you know, the needs that they will present when they come back. Um, you know, it's it Leeds West itself is a, is a growing school. We have more students coming in in year seven than we've ever had before. Um, so it, it's exciting times ahead as well. Um, and as our trust grows, we're starting to, you know, to um, build links with more and more education establishments across Leeds. That again brings brings huge challenge, but 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 huge optimism as well. Um, we we work as part of a the wider Luminate Education Group, um, which encompasses Leeds City College, Keighley College, Harrogate College, Leeds College of Music. So working with those uh, those FE professionals for a real diverse um, approach to education um, in the post-COVID era um, is a really exciting prospect. You know, potentially we will be educating students from age three to four in uh, in primary schools right the way through to um, HE um, offer and, and postgraduate um, provision. So it's a really exciting time for, for our trust, our individual schools and, and also our wider group. It certainly seems like there's plenty to uh, get stuck into amid all the uncertainty of the future question for sure. And, you know, given how informative it's been discussing this with you today, I think it would be fantastic to actually catch up and have you back on the air with us in a few months time just to see how things are getting on in that regard. I think from a listener's perspective, that would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. It'll be a real pleasure for myself as well, Christian, just as it has been having you join us today. It's been a thoroughly insightful experience for myself as a host as well. And most importantly, until we do speak again in future, which I'm sure is a certainty, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because I think it's fair to say we're certainly not out of the woods with the COVID-19 situation yet. No, thank you. And you too. That was Christian Wilcox speaking, Principal of Leeds West Academy. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett today is an active member of the House of Lords, Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of course a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. He became one of the most notable politicians of his generation during his political career, did Lord Blunkett, holding a number of senior positions positions in the cabinet of Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August of 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing 
staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time but to others around you and the sector that you're working in that will be really important do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the covid19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up, and they've shown uh, 
local, regional, national level, the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by 
local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to 
everything being London-centric, I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well Uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
we want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.